0: Okay, as you're opening up your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew 27, and you should have your Bibles open every week, but you're extra going to want it this week. Just trust me on that. So uh, Matthew 27, we're going to be in verse 27, so go ahead and pull out your Bible, and something that you can take notes with. got that feeling like I'm just going to burp a bunch. So hopefully that doesn't happen. (laughs) I didn't think that was going to be that funny, Natasha. (laughs) Should I be embarrassed or something? I don't know. (laughs) We are continuing our series, uh, Via Dolorosa. I was told last week that the the proper Latin pronunciation is "via." And I can't get myself to say it like that. So we're sticking with Via. <laughs> I don't know what it is about it. I just can't get there. I just can't get there. So uh, I'm, I'm happy today. I'm happy to, today to be at church. I'm happy that church happens every week. It's a good rhythm, same place, same time. It's just good to be here. Uh, and I've, just, I've got just warning. I have so much Bible for you coming this morning that the goal is just to kind of overwhelm you. So that's what I'm aiming for. So hopefully we get there. So we're doing this series, Via Dolorosa. It means the way of suffering or the way of grief. And it it is a commemoration of Jesus' road to the cross. There's a road in Jerusalem called this. It's maybe not specifically the exact way that he walked, but it's a way to memorialize his journey to the cross. And we are taking our Lent season these Sundays to remember the sufferings of Jesus and meditate on the sufferings of Jesus. Because Jesus really did suffer, that really does matter, and that actually really is a very important part of the good news. Because something I know about you is that you also suffer. You suffer in this life, and it is incredible that we have a God who knows what it is to suffer. Bless the Lord. And there is something about the sufferings of Jesus, I know I said this last week, but it's still true, there's something about meditating on and remembering the sufferings of Jesus that cuts through the white noise of life, cuts through some of maybe the drama in our lives or the world that we live in, it cuts through the desires of the flesh, and there is something about remembering the sufferings of Jesus that brings us so um, So close to Him. And that's what we're after. That's what I'm after. I want to be close to Jesus. I'm praying that that is the result, or that is the fruit of this series in your own life. It is worth the challenge and the discomfort of remembering the sufferings of Jesus. This morning, as we uh, continue our commemoration of Jesus' way of grief, we are going to be talking about our fourth station of the cross that we are discussing In our Sundays together, and the title of this morning's message is simply, The Soldiers Strip and Abuse Jesus. The Soldiers Strip and Abuse Jesus. Go ahead and stand to your feet for the reading of the Word of God. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters And they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we remember you this morning. We turn our attention towards you and our aim is to remember you we pray that you would open up our eyes to see you and you would reveal yourself to us this morning. So many people coming from so many different places and so many different sufferings, so many different highs, so many different lows, but Lord, we come to you united to the cross of Jesus Christ, to the way of your suffering. And we're asking that we might see you and know you like we've been talking about these last few weeks and in the songs that we've already sung this morning, Lord, our great need this morning is to know you, is to see you, is to be filled by your spirit and a revelation of you. So would you come? Would you come and open up your word to us, Holy Spirit? Speak to us, prepare our hearts and prepare our minds to receive from you. Lord, I'm praying over every heart, Lord, like that parable uh, you gave, Lord, I'm praying that you would reach in with your your merciful hand and you you would soften up any hard soil in our hearts and in our minds, that you would tear out any thorns that might choke out the word of God, that you would rip out any rocks that would keep the roots from going deep this morning, that we would be good soil, every single one of us this morning, Lord. In all the ways we're coming from, Lord, would we be good soil? We pray grace and mercy over every person in this room. If anybody is in here who doesn't know you, Lord, I'm praying that they would see your face and come running to the cross this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you can be seated. I don't have anything fancy for you this morning. We're just gonna walk through our passage. Step by step, and I'm going to give you tons of Bible, like I said. We're going to do a bunch of Bible study. It's probably too much to try to fit in one time and all that sort of good stuff, but enjoy it anyways. Enjoy a bath in the Word of God and the beauty of Jesus this morning. Matthew 27, 27 through 44. This is why you're going to need your Bible, because there's going to be a bunch of scriptures on the screen, and I told David back there, don't worry about jumping between Matthew and all the other stuff, so you got to have Matthew in front of you. Sound good? Keep Matthew in front of you. David's got you with the screen. Amen. All right, verse 27. Matthew 27, verse 27. We're just going to walk through this and discuss it as we go. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Here in this verse, as we meditate on the sufferings of Jesus, we have to not breeze over this, let's, let's, let's go there. Let's go there where Jesus was taken that we might understand him more fully. We may understand his sufferings more fully that we might understand what it was for the soldiers to strip and abuse him. Jesus has been on trial. He's gone through the judicial process. He has been presented to the crowd by Pilate with Pilate's ambition that Jesus actually go free. But the crowd says, no, we want want the insurrectionists and the murder back among us. We want you to crucify this man, Jesus. Pilate again says, "What, what? I can't do that. And they say, no, crucify him. So Jesus has been rejected. He's been on trial. And now we find ourselves in verse 27. Now he is in the hands of the soldiers of the governor. And they take him to the governor's headquarters. And they gather the whole battalion before him. Jesus has sort of been in the, sort of the false security of the judicial system up to this point. There's been, uh, it's been a public trial. There's been different crowds going on. Everything's kind of been in front of folks, but no more. Now he's taken behind closed doors into the governor's headquarters, handed over just to the soldiers. An unfamiliar place, alone, hidden from the eye of the public, condemned to die, at the mercy of whoever happens to be in the governor's headquarters with him behind these closed doors. And this verse tells us exactly who's there. A whole battalion. A whole battalion. Different gospels use different words for battalion. If if this is a technical term, if that's the goal here, then technically this would be about 600 men that Jesus is in now private hands. Totally vulnerable, vulnerable, at the mercy of war-hardened men who will face no impunity for whatever they're about to do to him next. Their only job is to get him to the cross at some point. 28 and 29, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. We hit on this in the first message of the series, but we see it again in our text this morning. That Jesus' crucifixion wasn't just brutal physically. He wasn't just brutally beaten physically. He was brutally mocked every step of the way. These guys had undoubtedly crucified insurrectionists before like Barabbas, but now they get the unique bit of sport that comes with someone who is not just a revolutionary like Barabbas, but an actual king. An actual king, a self-proclaimed king now stands before him, and they get to have their way. He had just ridden into town a few days earlier, welcomed by the ardent praise of the city, And causing an additional headache for all the Roman authorities, whose one job in Jerusalem was just keep the peace among the Jews. The Roman authorities already that day were dealing with a swollen city, full of more Jewish people that they didn't like, who were celebrating a Passover they didn't understand. And they're not going to miss this opportunity to get him back. They don't miss the opportunity to mock his proclaimed royalty. They, they dress him up. They call him king of the Jews. But what we see in the mockings from now until the end of our text this morning is that every way that Jesus was mocked was actually a mockery of the truth. And that makes it in so many ways even more twisted. First, they mock him with a robe to mock his royalty, here you go, king, here's your royal robes. Look at you now. What they didn't know is the whole truth. What does the Bible say about Jesus' royalty? Revelation 1.13, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. Revelation 19.16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, king of kings and lord of lords. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Isaiah 59.16-20, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm, speaking of the Lord, brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayments to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render payment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from the transgression, declares the Lord. Isaiah eleven five, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And they mock him with a robe. Then they give him a crown. They give him a crown. This, this fake king, as far as they understand, they give him a, a fake crown to mock his authority. And they call, him, they call him king, sarcastically. But they don't know that he really is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That actually is his name. Ephesians 1:21 says this, that Jesus that God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Speaking of Jesus' authority, he says himself, Matthew eleven twenty seven all things have been handed over to me by my father. John 19:11 Jesus has already told Pilate on this journey you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above Colossians 1:15 and 17 tells us this this man that they put the crown of thorns on his head is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. They mock his authority, but all things were created through him and for him. And this man is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. They mock him with a crown of thorns, thinking they are taking his life from him. But Jesus himself said in John 10, I lay my life down. I lay it down. I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And yet he takes a crown of thorns. All hail, King of the Jews. As they wrap up their mockery of his lordship, they give him a reed as a scepter, mocking his power. Psalm 45, verse 6 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Genesis forty-nine, ten, prophesies that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Revelation 19, 15 says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And yet he takes God in the flesh, in his right hand, a reed, mocking his power. This battalion of soldiers behind closed doors, they are mocking him as someone who is, who is, humili- who is humiliated and deranged. That's what they think he is. He's, he, this man is, is humiliated. He's deranged. He's a self-proclaimed king. He is now weak. He is captive. We take his life from him. He has nothing to stand for. He has no one to stand with him, not knowing that this is actually him who, though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant. Being made in likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even this death on a cross. And they mockingly kneel before him, not knowing that at his name, at his name, the name that is above every name, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that this Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. They have no idea what they're doing. And he stands there. This God, this true King, silent. Verses 30 through 35. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. I don't really have much to say about that other than that's crazy. This fake scepter they give the one true king of the universe, rip it back out of his all-powerful right hand and hit him on the head with it. And he's silent. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross and... When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. When they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. We're not going to go through this in detail, but... Specifically, this last verse, 35, is part of an interesting puzzle going on here in, in Matthew 27 and in the crucifixion story. There, All through the crucifixion scene, there are many different pieces that allude back to Psalm 22. I highly recommend you read Psalm 22 during this Lent season. Psalm 22 is a psalm where the writer is describing the situation that he's in, it, it's its a bad situation. He's crying out to God in the midst of desolation, in the midst of attack, in, 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 in the midst of pain. And he has enemies all around him. And he's describing what's going on inside of him, what's happening outside of him. And he's crying out to the Lord. And certain things that are written in Psalm 22 happen almost word for word all through the crucifixion. And then this is actually what Jesus quotes on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's verse one of Psalm 22. And so Matthew is writing to his, his audiences specifically to the Jews. And he's, he's doing, he's, he's writing, he's pointing out these details on purpose. He's not making them up to make a point. He's pointing them out on purpose to make a point. Because his audience would have understood Psalm 22. And one of the Hebrew practices when they're writing is that when you're alluding to something like a psalm, one little detail is you're invoking the whole thing. And so what Matthew is making sure to point out to us is that there's more going on than just what you and I breeze over here. In this verse, in 35, it says, When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. This is one of those things that happens in Psalm 22. In Psalm twenty-two, sixteen 16 and 18, it says this. The person, the writer, is crying out and he's saying, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. He says, the dogs encompass me. And there's another phrase in here that uh, it's either translated, they've pierced my hands and feet, or, or, it, or it's translated a little differently, more along the lines, kind of like the dogs. What about lions? Saying like, I'm, I'm surrounded by dogs and lions. It's just like this expression. You understand what I'm saying? He's not being literally like, there's actual dogs around me, and the dogs have pierced my hands. You, are you tracking with me? What he's describing in Psalm 22, and what, what Matthew is making sure we understand as we read this crucifixion, is that this is a very real, very physical thing happening, but there's an there's a, there's a otherworldly spiritual element to all of this that's going on. All through Psalms and through the Old Testament and through the Bible in general and, and other places in Psalm 22. Things like dogs or lions or the bulls of Bastion in Psalm 22. They're, 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 they're talking about demonic powers. And what's happening here is that we're getting the, the, the physical picture brutally painted for us. But in light of Psalm 22, we have to understand the spiritual side that Jesus is enduring as well. What we're learning is that this isn't just a physical crucifixion that Jesus is going through. It's, it's, it's an explanation, a, a painting of the spiritual picture that, that Jesus is subjecting himself to the spiritual powers of darkness. The dogs and the lions are surrounding him. And if you've ever watched, like, National Geographic shows or any of that stuff, like, you've seen wild dogs or lions, what they do when they surround. And it's this expression that it's not just that the soldiers are surrounding me and tearing me apart. What's happening to Jesus is the spiritual powers of darkness are surrounding him and tearing into him as a, crowd, as a herd of dogs or a pride of lions would. And Jesus is taking it. He's saying, my clothes are getting ripped off of me. You can see my bones. I'm getting... Torn through and through. Verses 36 and 37. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. This charge, this plaque that they put over Jesus' Jesus's head is a, is a statement. Oftentimes as part of the crucifixion, Well, crucifixions, they would happen in a a really public place. That's why Simon got pulled in as he was just trying to come in from out of the field. He's probably just trying to walk through the main gate of the city, but here comes the crucifixion. This was part of the point. The Romans wanted the public to see what this whole crucifixion thing was like, and then they would put a charge on top of the cross so that everyone would know, if you do something like this, something like this is going to happen to you. So don't do that. So they're being really intentional with this charge that they're making sure everybody sees above Jesus' head. And of course, along with everything else, it's an absolute mockery of Jesus. But it's not just a mockery of Jesus. It is mocking Jesus. They're, They're making the statement, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. This humiliated, naked, torn apart man hanging up on this cross, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So it's a mockery of Jesus and all that has been said about him and that he has proclaimed about himself. And in the same breath, it's an all-out mockery on the Jewish people. Here's your king and what we do to him. And it acts as a proclamation of Roman authority over anyone who would ever think of challenging that authority. You want to proclaim yourself something strong. This is what we do to strong people. Get in line. That's happening in the physical. It's happening in the natural. But this isn't just a political statement. Like we said, in light of Psalm 22, there's more to the story. Roman authority, just like so many who hold power in the world, all through history, and even today, considered their authority, considered their kingdom, considered their empire, considered their rulership divine. They considered the authority given to them divine from the gods, and Caesar and people like that actually considered themselves gods. Which, if you didn't know, that's pretty demonic. That ain't right. You're not God, just so you know. So this isn't just a statement of political truth that Rome is trying to make. The Roman authorities themselves are pawns of the demonic authorities that they've submitted themselves to in this moment. This is spiritual warfare, this sign right here. Manifesting in the natural realm, the demonic powers of the world, mocking the power of God as they parade the body of God's Son to their faithful subjects. Verse 38 and 39. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right hand and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. So on this way of suffering, Jesus has been hated by the Sanhedrin. He's been beaten and hung on a cross by the Romans. And now he's being derided by the public. Everybody gets a shot. The Romans mocked him from a political angle. The Jewish rulers were mocking him from a religious angle. We see in the narrative a very clear picture of reality that Jesus was rejected by everyone. It wasn't just the Romans. It wasn't just the Jews. It wasn't just these people and those people. It was everybody. And we know this. We've been meditating on this. This was, this was told to us beforehand in Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6, that we've been meditating on in our Selah moments. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. They passed by, deriding him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Jesus had just been saying the other day, and this was the charges brought against him as he walked past the temple, I'm going to tear that thing down and rebuild it in three days. This is one of the reasons he's on the cross. So everybody knew that he had said this. Everybody knew the outrageous claim that it was, and here they come, mocking him for it, saying, well, if you can do all that, why don't you take yourself down from the cross, not knowing that 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 is exactly what he's in the middle of doing. He's just on day one. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross, not knowing that's exactly what he's about to do. He's just on day one. Verse 41 and 42. So also, the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. They don't understand that there is a big difference between he cannot save himself and he will not save himself. Just last night in the garden, when they arrested Jesus, this happened, Matthew twenty six fifty one through 54. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Of course I can but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Don't mistake his will not for can not. Verse 42. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. I mean, how brutal is that? Isn't that what you wanted all along? You were telling us to believe and you just come on down. Come on down and we'll give you what you want. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. This sounds a lot like Matthew chapter 16, verses one through four, when this basically same group of people say the same exact thing. They demand their sign, their way, at their time. Matthew 16, 1, And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. He's in the middle of giving them the exact sign he told them he was going to give them. And they're missing the whole thing. Like Jonah went into the belly of the whale, Jesus goes into death. And they missed the whole thing. Verse 43 they continue mocking him. He trusts in God. <laughs> if you ever have had somebody mock you about your faith like that, take comfort. <laughs> Jesus got the same thing while he was literally hanging on the cross. If your God's so good, why didn't he do, you know? He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If God loves you so much, why doesn't he give you what you want? He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. This is the second time the crowd has mocked Jesus by challenging his identity. If you're really the son of God, this should happen. Sounds a lot like Matthew chapter 4 verses five through seven, where Jesus is met by the devil in the desert with the same temptations he is now getting met with by the devil on the cross. Matthew four, verses five through seven, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, it is also written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't mistake his will not for cannot. Don't you think I know that I just got to call to my father one time and all the angels you're telling me to call, they'll come. But don't put the Lord your God to the test. Not my will, but your will. In verse 44, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Something that I hope you're seeing through this series, and that I hope you see even more this morning, is that when we talk about Jesus' suffering, we aren't just talking about Jesus' physically suffering. That means that when we talk about fellowshipping with Jesus and his sufferings, we aren't just talking about fellowshipping with Jesus through physical suffering. I know the band's moving around, but I need you to pay close attention. Keep your eyes up here. When we talk about fellowshipping with Jesus and his sufferings, we aren't just talking about fellowshipping with Jesus through physical suffering. And that means that when we say Jesus is familiar with our sufferings, He isn't just familiar with our physical sufferings. I've been talking about how the old Pentecostal journals and suffering for Christ, and I know that oftentimes us in our culture and in our context, we can hear about people suffering for Jesus, and we immediately go to the physical stuff, and it's like, well, I'm not going to lose my house. The police aren't going to come in here. Maybe I don't know what it is to suffer with Jesus, but I want you to pay attention this morning. Jesus didn't just suffer physically on the cross. He suffered in every way, on the cross, to the cross, and through the cross. He suffered mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, relationally. If you have ever experienced fear, pain, hatred, revilement, embarrassment, injustice, abuse, discrimination, malpractice, mistreatment, unfairness, violation, wrongdoing, oppression, offense, abandonment, inequity, discouragement, disappointment, rejection. If you have ever suffered, Jesus, the king of the universe, can genuinely and deeply empathize with you in that pain. There is real relationship with Jesus, real intimacy with Jesus in your deepest pain. Not just because he is merciful and faithful to let you bring your pain to him, but because he is merciful and faithful to be in your pain with you. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16 through 18 says this, For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I want to encourage you this morning that yes, there, praise God, there is a time to heal. There is a time to stand back up. There is a time to get back on the horse. There is a time to move on. But in the great mercy of God, that time is preceded by a time to meet with Jesus. To meet with Jesus, not despite your pain, not regardless of your pain, but actually, truly, genuinely in your pain. Isaiah 53 says that he doesn't just make allowance for you to have your sorrows, he was a man of sorrows. He doesn't just make allowance for you to have grief. He himself was acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53.5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his resurrection, we are healed. With his victory, we... No. With his wounds, we are healed. With his wounds we are healed. Everyone that Jesus healed had to bring them, had to bring him their wounds. Don't hide your wounds from Jesus and expect to get healed. Whatever your wounds are, mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, relational, bring them to the cross of Jesus Christ. And behold him. Come and see him on the road of suffering. Come and see his wounds on the cross. And as you look at the cross, you need to know that yes, it is your sin that holds him there, but it is also his grace that heals you there. Luke 23 34. Tells us that Jesus, when he finally opened his mouth in all of this, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the great invitation of the sufferings of Jesus. This is the invitation of Jesus come, come to the cross, come to the cross and be healed. Come to the cross and be forgiven. And then as we look at Jesus on the cross, as we're forgiven by the blood poured out for us, as we are healed in the wounds suffered for us, we now take his lead as we listen to him turn to those and turn to us, putting him through the sufferings he endures and he says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As you come to the cross and bring your wounds, as you come to the cross and bring your sins, be forgiven, come and be healed, and then, my friends, go. Go. Go and freely give as you have freely received. Go and heal. Go and forgive. Is there a wound that you need healed? Is there forgiveness you need to receive? Is there forgiveness you need to give? Come to the cross of Jesus Christ. Come and receive. Will you stand as we close our time together? We're gonna worship and respond to whatever the Lord's doing. Our prayer team's gonna come up and if you need prayer for anything, anything at all, don't hesitate. Come get what you need. Let's come and behold Jesus this morning, that when we might be sent out of this place, healed and forgiven, so that we can heal and forgive. Lord Jesus, open up our eyes to see you. Open up our hearts to receive you. Open up our ears to hear you. And would you bring us to the beautiful cross of Christ to see you in your sufferings, Receive forgiveness and be healed by your glorious wounds. Would you come and give us a glorious revelation of you this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together.